guys, and welcome back to a new episode of Language Teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Eleni Berizabri. In this week's podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about key concepts in second language acquisition theory and make uh, connections with current lines of inquiries. And we're also going to develop some form of understanding as to why there is no one-size-fits-all model for acquiring another language. Historically, there have been uh, approaches to second language teaching in the, from the 19th century to the 1950s. There was a method called the grammar translation method, and it focused on conjugation of verbs, memorizing vocabulary, learning syntactic rules and exceptions, taking dictation, and translating written texts. Communicative proficiency was not a particularly important goal. And then uh, in the 60s until current uh, times, there have been more direct methods where translation is avoided and oral language proficiency is heavily emphasized. Students are encouraged to think in the target language and grammar has been taught more inductively. Some examples of these methods, you might have heard of them, like the Berlitz method. Some are a little bit more technical, as the natural approach, suggestipedia, and total physical response. And in the late 50s, the audiolingual method was heavily influenced by behavioral psychology. Language learning was seen of just another form of learning, where you form habits and systematic practice was needed. This is where drills, memorization, error correction, imitation, repetition, and reinforcement were extremely prevalent. The use of the second language would become automatic and they would be able to produce sentences of their own. At least that was the rationale behind that method. I think this is an excellent chance and opportunity to talk about Chomsky's impact in the field of language acquisition, specifically second language acquisition. In 1958, he wrote his dissertation on syntactic structures, and his dissertation overthrew the reigning paradigm of behaviorism promoted by F.B. Skinner. So Chomsky's main argument was, in any language, the number of sentences is infinite, and there is no limit to the grammatical combination of words. So let's go ahead and, and unpack that. Chomsky's assertion basically was that children could master complex syntactic structures in their first language, and that language was an open-ended creative process. And so that's where Chomsky's value, the value of his research comes into play because he's basically overthrowing everything that we had thought of before. That language was a skill that needed drilling and that followed specific repetitions. And now we think of this and we're saying, duh, but that's not what happened at the time. You know, like, like this guy was the first person to say that. And that has a lot of value, even if we can't understand most of his work. He also argued that human beings have this innate cognitive capacity for language. 
and that there are linguistic universals that enable us to formulate rules because yes, there are rules that form verbal sounds that we hear. However, these rules depend on linguistic structure of the language. For example, subject, predicate, that sort of thing. And natural languages differ in particulars, but all natural languages share a universal grammar. And so here is where I'm gonna go off to a little bit of a tangent to distinguish between linguistic competence and linguistic performance. So competence is the knowledge a speaker has to generate an infinite number of sentences. The linguistic performance is the actual use of language in the real world. And I think it's important to distinguish this because further on in the series, at least this season, we'll be exploring how that connection between linguistic competence and linguistic performance um, is viewed through the different fields and intersections of language teaching. I also want to mention that there are other influences on contemporary second language acquisition theory. Uh, the first one that I want to mention is natural order, and it's that children master grammatical sentences and grammatical structures in their first language before they do so in their second language. And so that's where you might have a child that is immersed in a household with two languages where they will master one before the other. That's one theory. The next one is called the critical period hypothesis. And it basically says, and I wanna be as brief as possible here, that a child will acquire a language before it, they hit puberty. So after puberty, then it's no longer uh, a natural language acquisition. This does not mean that you can't learn a language after puberty. It just means that it's going to take different resources and different strategies for an adult to acquire a language. Now I'm going to talk about Stephen Prashen. He makes a distinction between acquisition versus learning, where acquisition is unconscious. You don't realize you're grasping that knowledge, whereas learning is planned, it's conscious. And he talks a little bit about the input hypothesis, which was definitely influenced by Chomsky. And it's this thought of teaching students just above their level. And he terms this as comprehensible input. He also talks about a monitor, and that's just that language learners have an innate editing function that is aided or not necessarily by their effective filter, which is what's going to allow the student to or prevent them from risk-taking. He also talks about something called the silent period, where it's just a normal period in which the language learner doesn't use the target language. So they're basically just absorbing everything in. 
and this could typically last about six months or longer. Now we're going to talk about some basic theories in second language acquisition. The first one we're going to talk about is BICS versus KELP. Uh, BICS stands for Basic Interpersonal Communication Skills and KELP, Cognitive Academic Language Proficiency. And this was originally promoted or, or introduced by Jim Cummings and he basically says that there are different skills that you need in order to acquire the use of social language. Language develops relatively easily from social activities like watching TV, movies, radio, and informal conversational exchanges. Social language is very context embedded. What does that mean? That it is aided by context clues. So you have a lot of nonverbal communication going on with facial expressions, body language, and you, you have to model that or, or demonstrate it. You also need to um, teach your student on visual cues. Some ideas or some strategies that you can incorporate in your classroom to improve social language could be retelling of events, or as, or as my students love to call it, spilling the tea, talking about experiences. And I think now with uh, all that's going on with this COVID-19 pandemic, um, I think that having that space for students to be able to express themselves and talk about their experiences in, in the target language, which in this case would be English, would be a great opportunity for their social emotional health. You can also have them describe activities or give personal opinions. And what you just heard there in the background are my fur babies making a guest appearance. Okay, so back to it. So if social language is context embedded, then what about academic language? Well, this is abstract, higher level academic discourse that would be found in more formal settings. And some activities that you could incorporate in your classroom to promote academic language discourse could be uh, comparing, contrasting, listening, defining, classifying, um, right, and, and trying to get them to use this very um, abstract type of language. Academic language is usually, and by usually I mean pretty much all the time, context reduced. What does that mean? Is that there are fewer clues to support or help students comprehend that content information. And I know that right now we're talking in, in abstractions, right? Like, yo, Dr. E, tell me, give me an example of social versus academic language. Well, I'm glad that you asked. An example of a question formulated within social language discourse would be something like, what did you like about this book? Whereas, the same question within an academic discourse would be, what appealed to you about the characters in this book? Same question, different discourse. And 
Cummings did a really good job of trying to provide educators with strategies and ideas and examples of what is context embedded and context reduced within the realms of his Bix and Kelps theory. He calls this his four quadrants. And um, as much as I would love to explain the quadrant in this podcast, it really is a graph. And I'm going to be uh, posting in the description uh, a source of the particular uh, Cummins four quadrants that I'm actually looking at right now so that you can get an idea of what it looks like. And so going back to context embedded and context reduced and, and how that intersects with Bix and Kelp, um, there have been a lot of critiques, particularly by Troiki, um, where they say social language is not cognitively undemanding, right? And academic language is not more demanding it's just different and so after contemplating critiques to his theories he created something called common underlying proficiency right um he basically originally had a theory the theory that we just talked about was called separate underlying proficiency and it was discredited because it argued that there was no overlap between languages. And this common underlying proficiency actually says, no, wait, there is something that connects both languages. And so that leads me to talk about the linguistic interdependence hypothesis. And so this hypothesis is related to the theory of common underlying proficiency because it has to do with language transfer. So what that means is that literacy skills developed in the first language will transfer to the second language. This hypothesis predicts that a child who has mastered the basics of reading and thinking in their native language, their first language, will perform well when entering a second language environment like a classroom. What this hypothesis does not take into consideration is this bicultural ambivalence that happens when an English language learner manifests shame of their first culture, but also hostility towards the second. For example, a student might be embarrassed to speak Spanish with their parents or extended family members who may not speak English, but also resists learning English or performing well academically in English. Some signs that you have a biculturally ambivalent child or student might take the form of inappropriate classroom behaviors like self-silencing, acting out, or speaking back, slurriness, and general unhappiness or self-alienation. Now I'm going to be talking a little bit about the criticisms towards some of these um, theories. It's important to know that these criticisms are good. This is a good thing. Because whenever interesting and important theories are proposed, people have a chance to think about them, to observe them in practice, and refine or recontextualize them, or even criticize or rebuke them. 
This, again, I will say is a good thing. This is what advances our understanding in the field. And also, a critique of a theory doesn't necessarily reduce its values for us as teachers. Conversations about how theory helps us help our students improve our understanding of our own teaching practices. And so the first uh, criticism I'm going to talk about is the one towards comprehensible input, the monitor, acquisition learning, all that part of the input hypothesis, Krashen's input hypothesis. So first thing, Lightbound says, yo, this theory is too complicated. It's trying to make one theory out of too many ideas. It's a combination of a linguistic theory, social psychological theory, a learning theory, discourse analysis, and sociolinguistic theory. Don't bite off more than you can chew. That's basically, in a nutshell, what the author uh, critiqued about Krashen's hypothesis. So it's a nice concept, but it sounds a lot like Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. What's exactly the difference? McLaughlin also questioned the distinction between acquisition and learning because the author believed it was oversimplified. Mason in 2002 doubled down and he said that Krashen seemed to be wrong when he suggests that learned language, the rules of grammar, are only of much use when writing. People do seem to need the rules in order to speak in well-formed sentences. And I mean, I could go on uh, mentioning the different critiques that there are to Krashen's input hypothesis, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to link to those papers in the description of this podcast, and if you want to find out more, you can definitely look at them. And to round out, what makes this particular episode important is this question. Why do we as educators, as language teachers, need to know this stuff? Well, first, theory matters. It has implications for how we teach and how we organize our classrooms. Second, theory helps us. It helps us plan curriculum, it it helps us develop our pedagogy, and it helps us understand how children learn and learn languages in particular. And finally, If you're a nerd like me, you find all this stuff really interesting. It could be fun to digest, argue, deconstruct, praise or criticize these theories in ways that helps us better understand it and better understand our children's and students' language learning. And so that wraps up our second episode. Please let me know if you have any topics that you want me to discuss, any people you want me to interview and talk to. Uh, I look forward for your input, and I want to remind you that, that even though this is like my project, it really, I really want it to become our uh, project and our community. I'll be um, giving you guys the references for all the readings I consulted as I prepared for this podcast. It's going to be also in the description section. And I will also be posting that reference in my Facebook page. So, stay safe, wear a mask, and until next week.